0: Uh, This is a News Radio 1440 podcast. Good evening, everybody, and thank you so much for being with us here on Tactics, where speech isn't violence, tolerance isn't love, and disagreement isn't hate. Welcome to the program. I am so glad that all of you are with us this evening. As always, I'm your host, Caleb Colquitt. We have a lot of news to get to, but you know my background, you know how I think. If you've been a fan of this show, you probably have a pretty good guess of what our first story is going to be and that of course is going to be the SCOTUS decision that came down last week. Now it actually came down, it's a little bit of old news because it came down late Wednesday evening right on Thanksgiving Eve but of course we didn't have a show on Thanksgiving and so we're getting to it now and by the way this is not going to be the only segment that we do on this. I actually just got word from our friend who's been on the program many many times Matt Clark, he's actually going to be coming uh, from the Foundation for Moral Law to discuss this further with us on the next episode, so be sure to check that episode out as well. But right now, I did want to go over some commentary and and keep you informed on what's going on here, because this, I mean, I'm always going to gravitate towards the religious liberty cases. I am. That's just who I am. That's how I've always been. This is the stuff that interests me the most in being a constitutional nerd, I'm always going to gravitate towards things of that nature. And the Supreme Court, man, I, this is a a brilliant example, I guess is the best way to say it, of why it was so important to have a full nine-person court very quickly. Because we not only are going to see some very contentious debate in the Supreme Court likely coming up about the vote counting and whether or not there was voter fraud or not, which is very, very important to have nine judges On the Supreme Court when that is the case, to break any ties and make sure that it's not the lower federal courts that are deciding that. But more importantly, here is uh, another, I think, even more important than our election, which is saying a lot. It comes to the very first right that the Constitution recognizes, which is, of course, the right to religious liberty. So, just to give you a little bit of background on this particular Supreme Court case, Governor Andrew Cuomo, who is just the worst. Governor Cuomo, who I think is, is still the worst governor in the United States, he has been especially harsh and brutal when it comes to matters of religious liberty because this is something that is just not personally very important to him. And so even though New York basically did literally everything wrong with the coronavirus, including by Andrew Cuomo's decree importing people that they knew for a fact were COVID-positive patients into a nursing home, the most vulnerable population among them, which resulted in many of those people dying and even the nursing homes themselves coming out and saying, please stop this, you're putting our residents in danger, continue to do it, but oh, he's Mr. Safety and we have to do everything to make sure that people are safe from this virus. That's the the guise under which he has been especially harsh with religious institutions. Now, not mosques, just in case you were wondering. Not any kind of religious institution other than basically anything that's not Jews and Christians. You can rest assured that if there is a group of Jews especially wandering around in New York City and having any kind of religious event where there are two or more gathered, Andrew Cuomo is going to be there to break it up. He even, I remember several weeks into this thing, was begging regular New York citizens to go out and snitch on anybody that they think might be worshipping in groups of 10 or more people. He was actually trying to turn the citizens of New York against one another so that they would be reporting to the government to make sure that there was nobody worshipping not None of this has happened to Mosque, by the way, and there are, you know, a handful, quite a bit, actually, of Muslims living in New York. It's a very diverse city. And yet, n- no stories of them being shut down, no stories of him going after them, but any time there are a bunch of Orthodox Jews gathering together to have a funeral for one of their big religious leaders, Andrew Cuomo, rest assured, is going to be there to break it up. And he's just been doing this over and over and over again. And he's been singling out these churches despite the fact that places like your grocery stores and your hardware stores and your bicycle repair shops and all manner of other shops still open for business, still not shut down. This is a guy that didn't even shut down and clean the subway until I believe we were well into June, July when that took place. But don't worry, guys. He's Mr. Safety, and that's why it's very important for him to protect you from going to church and getting sick from the virus at church. Because this is a very, very smart, very woke virus that only tends to affect people if they are behaving in a manner in which leftists deem not necessarily all that important or acceptable. Therefore, if you're at a church, which is something that the leftists do not like, then the virus can infect you, and it's very, very scary and very, very dangerous there. When you're rummaging through the shelves at a Home Depot, no, that's fine. That's perfectly okay. You can do that. But when you're, you know, sitting next to someone listening to a sermon, then you're in great danger of this virus anyway. And so th- that's kind of the baseline. This th- That's where all of this is set up. So the court decided 5-4 in a decision with Roberts siding with the liberal justices, which at this point, can we just refer to Roberts as a liberal justice I mean, based on the way that he's been ruling in every controversial case, he's always siding with the liberals. Can we not just refer to him as one of the liberal justices now? Frankly, I think he'd like that. I don't think he would be opposed to it. So why don't we just call a spade a spade at this point and start referring to Chief Justice Roberts as one of the liberal justices? Because in every consequential one, Justice Roberts is siding with the liberals. And I'm going to say something here that might even upset some Trump fans. I really did believe and bought into the narrative because based on the information available to me, it seemed like the most likely of the outcomes that a lot of the decisions that Chief Justice Roberts has made as of late was because the guy does have a personal vendetta against the president, he doesn't like the president, he doesn't like the fact that he's kind of an outsider and that he isn't a part of the Washington system, that he's an anomaly, then it seemed like an awful lot of Robert's rulings were based on that, that he doesn't personally like the man. I think that that's actually wrong. I think that, if anything, this decision, which should be a clear-cut 9 nothing decision with absolutely no wavering whatsoever... I think this straight up proves that Justice Roberts is just a liberal. That's where his sensibilities lie. Now, I'm willing to accept the idea that back in the day, Roberts was more conservative and changed over time and became more liberal. I think that that's a feasible theory, even though he's always been pretty close. He's always been at the very least in the middle, if not on the left. But When we've been seeing basically everything since the Obamacare administration, or the Obamacare decision, which, might I remind you, predates President Trump. This is long before President Trump was even the Republican nominee. And so I think that we can look at the, the body of evidence now and say, John Roberts is not doing this because he doesn't like the president. I still think that he doesn't. But I think this is not because John Roberts just doesn't like the president. I think this is just because John Roberts has shifted to the left and has since about 2014-15. I think that's what's actually going on here. But That's actually why this is important. Because the case itself, and we're going to get into this in a second, but the case itself is somewhat of a moot point. Not really, but you could look at it and go, okay, well, the particular district that these regulations did apply to, in other words, where they were not allowed to worship because this was the, I think they moved it to the orange zone where there were that many cases, they said that, well, we actually downgraded it to where churches can gather in larger groups now, and so this is a moot point. Okay, well, maybe that's the case, even though there's quite a bit of evidence to suggest that they specifically downgraded it because of this court case, not because of the numbers changing. But let's ignore that for a second. Let's pretend that what is actually going on here is that, well, it just downgraded itself. And so because of that, this is a moot point. In this case, it has no bearing. That's not true for a couple of reasons. First of all, it's always possible that this case could wind up, you know, let's say cases start skyrocketing in New York again, and they do wind up shutting down the churches and the synagogues. Were we supposed to just start a completely new court case and the court has to throw it out? That doesn't make any sense. If there was an injustice done, and I would say this whether it were a religious liberty issue or any other issue, if there was an injustice done, the court needs to hash it out, so that it does not happen in the future if a similar situation arises. The second reason why this is an incredibly important case is because it gives us some insight into how the court is going to rule on other similar cases. And this decision, I think, is going to be a message to governors in other states, other than New York, that maybe we don't have a license to just straight up ignore the First Amendment and deny people's right to worship and and practice religion as they see fit. Maybe that's not such a good idea if the Supreme Court is going to come down hard on Andrew Cuomo for doing that, so maybe we should back off. That's another way that this case is incredibly important. So you've got a good gauge for how the court will rule because of this on religious liberty cases versus COVID restrictions. And then I think it's also useful to a somewhat lesser degree, but in a broader sense, of how the court in the future is going to rule on religious liberty cases as a whole. And that's important. That is not a minor thing. Because this gives us some insight into how the new court with Amy Coney Barrett and the new makeup of the court is going to fall out. Now, unfortunately, it does, because of that, somewhat confirm some of our fears, which is, Roberts is just a liberal justice now. Even in something that is obvious and clear-cut as this, that it's an obvious constitutional violation, Roberts has decided that he would rather side with the liberals than side with the Constitution. That's just how he sees things now. And so from now on, I think that it is, based on this decision and, and based on his dissent, I think that it is not at all an unreasonable belief? No, I would go with an unreasonable expectation that Justice Roberts is perfectly fine with ignoring natural rights, ignoring the Constitution, in order to side with the left. That is going to be the Roberts M.O. on religious liberty issues for the foreseeable future. And that's unfortunate, but I also say that this is the reason that the liberal freakout over Amy Coney Barrett was ridiculous, because... Obviously, I I get that they don't like the person. I get that they don't ally with her uh, when it comes to her stance on the law because, you know, she actually believes the law says what it says and means what it says, and because of that, that's how she interprets law, and they really don't like that. They'd rather a judge just basically greenlight every liberal policy that they have and, and ignore what the Constitution has and can constantly reinterpret it to fit their own modern take on what it should say. But nonetheless, without getting into the judicial theory there, they had the freak out saying that this is going to be a permanent conservative majority on the court. Bullcrap. I said that when that was happening, that Justice Roberts is going to be at the very least a Kennedy, if not to the left of Kennedy. I genuinely believe that Kennedy winds up siding with the conservatives if he's still on the court on this one. I think that that's no question about that. But anyway, so here we are going down the rabbit hole, and this really does prove what I've been saying for a while, is that this is going to be the makeup of the court for the foreseeable future. Now, luckily, there is a justice that I think did an epic and very well-orchestrated takedown. I'm still upset at Neil Gorsuch for his decision, one of his previous decisions, but ultimately... This is the reason that people like me that were originalist and textualist, you know, barring his decision on the Title IX and the transgender thing, this is the reason that we were excited to see Gorsuch on the court because he issues a scathing rebuke of Governor Cuomo's case and does so in a way that not only looks at the Constitution and its original text, but is also snarky which is exactly what I was looking for in a Supreme Court justice. Obviously, that's far less important than the actual underlying judicial philosophy. I'd rather have a Clarence Thomas that's not snarky at all versus a Antonin Scalia. But with Antonin Scalia gone and Gorsuch filling his shoes, it is nice to have that sort of signature wit and wisdom intertwined coming from Neil Gorsuch. So let's go ahead and look at this argument. This was in his concurring opinion. So, Gorsuch says, in regards to this, At the same time, the governor has chosen to impose no capacity restrictions on certain businesses he considers, quote, essential. And it turns out the businesses that the governor considers essential include hardware stores, acupuncturists, and liquor stores. Bicycle repair shops, certain signage companies, accountants, lawyers, and insurance agents are all essential, too. So, at least according to the governor... It may be safe to go to church. It may be, sorry, it may be unsafe to go to church, but it is always fine to pick up another bottle of wine, shop for a new bike or spend the afternoon exploring your distal points and meridians. Who knew that public health would so perfectly align with secular convenience? Holy cow, that is a slam dunk in the legal sense if I've ever seen one. And it just points out the obvious, which is that Governor Cuomo seems to think that this laundry list of things are just not essential. Or, sorry, that they're essential, but going to church, not essential. And Gorsuch is saying, wow, it's just such a... This is where the snark comes in, and I love it. It's just amazing how all of the things that are essential... Are basically all the things that are convenient, all the things that Governor Cuomo himself would want to stay open and deem essential. Worshiping not essential, nope. Don't don't have to worry about that. That's not something that you like have to do. This is Scalia level sass, and it is perfect. But this is why it's a good illustration what Gorsuch is talking about here. This is a good explanation of why our system is designed the way that it is, and by that I mean our Constitutional Republic. The way that our federal government was designed, and also the way that the state governments were modeled after, California, and New York, and some others that have grown the executive power less so, but all the states basically started with a similar mold of the federal constitution, which is that the executive should not have a lot of sweeping power. The executive should be able to make some emergency decisions, and should have some leeway when it comes to, you know, orchestrating the functions of government, but by and large, they shouldn't be making any decisions unilaterally themselves. That's something that Congress and a legislative body should hash out, not just them. Why? Because it is too easy for a person's personal beliefs, personal preferences, and personal biases to make their way through if an executive is making all of those decisions. And by the way, this is not something that suggests that Andrew Cuomo is an awful person. I mean, he is, but this is not an argument for it. I'm saying this because any normal person, Caleb Cockwood, if he were the governor of the great state of Alabama, which I know is a horrifying thought, but just follow me on this one, if I were the governor, it would be too easy for my personal preferences to play into those decisions if I had that level of power, even if I had no malicious intent whatsoever. There would be blind spots, things that I wouldn't consider because I'm just one person. And without consulting with a large body of people and debating that over the course of several days and trying to figure out if this is actually a good idea or not, I would just miss a lot of things, even if I didn't mean to. And that's the reason that our system was set up in such a way... That these people aren't supposed to be able to make those big sweeping decisions. They're not supposed to be able to tell you, you can worship this way, you can't worship this way. That you can do this, but you can't do that. And unfortunately, the coronavirus has made these governors power drunk and they think that they can do basically whatever they want with no restrictions. This is the thing that has frustrated me over and over again, where I have to sometimes ask people, what are you willing to say no to? Seriously, when it comes to the coronavirus stuff, what what mandate could they throw down that you would not comply with? Because I got to tell you, when I'm talking to a lot of my evangelical friends, and they come to me and they're like, "Yeah, well, the government said that we shouldn't be going to church now and we don't want to stir the pot." Really? Because if the government can say, "Don't go to church for a while," and you say, "All right, boss," is there really anything else that you would say no to? Seriously. Like, isn't that, like, as far as it goes? And I don't understand how these very same Christians, a lot of... And granted, if if you want to do that of your own free will, in other words, if you just... You don't want to go because you have comorbidities, or you think it would be dangerous and it's better to worship from home. I'm not trying to call you out on that. What I'm saying is when you're saying that it's okay for the government to make that decision for you, that's a bridge I can't follow you on, friends. I, I will not ever be okay with that, period. The government shouldn't have any say in this, and this is exactly what Gorsuch is pointing out. Especially when, and this is Gorsuch's argument, you've got all these other places that you've just deemed essential, and because they have the magical essential flag, then they're not dangerous, and therefore there can be no capacity limits on them whatsoever. But churches, because we think that that one's going to be not essential, okay, it doesn't matter whether or not you think it's essential. What matters is whether or not the person who's supposed to have the religious liberty to make that decision themselves considers it essential. And that's why they should be making that decision, and the government should not have any say in whether or not that person is allowed to worship. That's the difference. If that person doesn't want to go to worship because he believes that the pandemic is too bad, okay, that's his business. But a governor doesn't have the right to take that from him. That's what Gorsuch is really saying here, and he continues the same line of thought in the next part of his opinion where he sort of elaborates on this, where he says, as almost everyone on the court today recognizes, so he's saying even the liberal justices, and I'm including Justice Roberts in that, squaring the government's edicts with our traditional First Amendment rules is no easy task. Okay, so that's important because Gorsuch is even saying there, look, we're not saying that this isn't a sticky situation or it's not difficult or there's... You know not some considerations to be played in here but you know and, and that's why he, he sets that up with that i he doesn't want people to think incorrectly that he's just saying there can be no limitations on anything the government doesn't have any power that's not what he's saying he's saying there are considerations to the constitution here and he continues on people may gather inside for extended periods in bus stations and airports and laundromats and banks in hardware stores and liquor shops no apparent reason exists why people may not gather subject to identical restrictions in churches or synagogues, especially when religious institutions have made plain that they stand ready, able, and willing to follow all the safety precautions required of quote, essential businesses and perhaps more besides. The only explanation for treating religious places differently seems to be a judgment that what happens there just isn't, quote, essential as what happens in secular spaces. Indeed, the governor is remarkably frank about this. In his judgment, laundry and liquor, travel and tools are all essential, while traditional religious experiences are not. That is exactly the kind of discrimination the First Amendment forbids. And so this is kind of the the final word, even though it's nowhere near the end, it's actually in the introduction. But this is kind of the thesis of Gorsuch's entire concurring opinion, which is you can't just single out whatever religious group you don't like and say that's not essential, but these other groups you can do whatever you want there. This is actually the point that John Ismo, you may remember Colonel John John Ismo came a couple months ago and spoke to us about this specifically and he's a constitutional specialist and knows a lot more about this stuff than I do, he said, maybe there are some restrictions that could be placed, but they certainly can't single out churches and say you churches specifically are not allowed to do these things that all these other businesses and private institutions are allowed to do. In fact, it's the exact opposite. Not only is it not okay to do that to just churches and not other institutions, but the Constitution actually reverses that In other words, there are certain things, certain restrictions and regulations that can be placed on private institutions that the government has that there is a specific carve-out for churches because it is protected under the First Amendment. That churches are actually supposed to have more protection than those institutions and businesses, not less. That you're supposed to be more free to worship, not go out and buy groceries and detergent. Or you know, in this case, liquor. And so that's what—that's the argument that Gorsuch is saying here. He's like, you certainly can't just pick and choose your favorites and say, well, I think this thing is more essential than this thing. I have no reason for it. This is just my personal preference. But you guys, you have to stick to a crowd of 10 people or less. You other guys over there in the liquor store, yeah, have as many people in there as you want. It doesn't matter. Even if it had just been, okay, churches, you can only have 10. Liquor store, you can have 20. Same principle would apply. You cannot pick and choose which places you're going to close down. Now, if you say we're shutting down the whole city, nobody's allowed to go anywhere and gather in groups of more than 10, okay, I disagree with that, and I still think it's a First Amendment decision, but at least then you wouldn't have Gorsuch's argument here, which is you can't just single out churches because you don't think that they're as essential as the other places that you didn't shut down. And that's why this is such an epic takedown from Gorsuch. And by the way, I made exactly this point when Governor Ivey did exactly the same thing. I know that sometimes in Alabama, we like to think, oh, yeah, this is a red state. And all that insanity that goes on over in the in blue country in California and Oregon and Washington and New York and Vermont and all those places that couldn't happen here. It did happen here. Exactly what Gorsuch is talking about happened in the state of Alabama where you remember when we were first cutting out, coming out of the shutdown, I did a video on it. You can go back and look at my archive on Tactics Radio at YouTube. Be sure to like and subscribe. If you go back to my YouTube channel and look up Governor Ivy doing this, is in the local story section. You can see that a few months ago, she said, you know what, we are going to open up restaurants and let them go to 25% capacity. Churches, you've got to stay at 10. No more than 10 people. Governor Ivey did exactly what Andrew Cuomo did and Neil Gorsuch said is blatantly unconstitutional, which is exactly the argument that I made when Governor Ivey did the same thing. Governor Ivey's edict was just as unconstitutional as Cuomo's because it did exactly the same thing. And I want you to remember that every time Governor Ivey or any other Alabama politician that supported those measures comes out and tells you how important jesus is to them and talks about on all of their political ads about how they've been a bible teacher at their local church and how much they love god and how it inspires everything they do Mm, when you couldn't even break that threshold of protecting first amendment religious liberty because of a virus that has a 99.96 percent survival rate you're gonna to have to work a little harder to convince me how important religion is to you. Remember that the next time there's an election here in Alabama. But if the First Amendment was not written for this, why do we have it? If, if this specifically, closing down churches because a person in power doesn't want them to remain open or deems them too dangerous, If the First Amendment's not written to stop that, I don't know why we have it. Please explain to me, anybody, I challenge anybody out there watching on the internet, please explain to me what the purpose of the First Amendment is, if not this. Because I can't think of anything that's a more clear-cut example of the government overstepping its bounds and going after a religion that it doesn't see personal, it doesn't personally see value in. You don't get to pick and choose like that. And that's the thing. That's the thing that I think this is the reason that a lot of even conservatives get confused about this is because they're constantly thinking about this as a political issue. And we're talking about it on a political show. So obviously it is a political issue. But you're not seeing the other side of that. Liftism is a rival religion. And because they are a rival religion, they compete with Christianity. They're not a rival political party. They are a rival religion. And I've done countless segments on this, but just here are a few examples of this going on. They are an actual rival religion that is trying to engage in religious favoritism. You can engage in the, the rites of passage. You can engage in the acts of worship that they want to engage in but you're not allowed to do it when it's the religion that you subscribe to perfect example of this i think just kind of encapsulates the whole thing is this story from california who you may know is actually re-entering lockdown and locking down churches again it never really fully opened but this is the story from western journal you can see in this headline California pastor temporarily turns church into a strip club so that it can open for services during COVID. This is the level of debauchery that we have found ourselves in, people. Read this little excerpt from this article. The latter group has succeeded, which might be the most California thing ever. In a ruling dated November 6, San Diego Superior Court Judge Joel R. Wolfite wrote that the state couldn't stop clubs from being allowed to provide adult entertainment in San Diego County, saying that the harm to plaintiffs is the application is denied is greater than the harm to the defendants if the application is granted. So in this decision, in the state of California, what this judge decided is, well, the First Amendment protects free speech and sexually gratifying yourself Uh, by having a naked woman dance in front of you, or a naked man, as the case may be, that is an expression of free speech, ergo, that must be protected and the government's not allowed to say otherwise. And this is taking place in a state where they're saying, no, you can't go to church and can't worship, and you're certainly not allowed to sing during worship. So, if you're keeping score at home, boys and girls, first of all, the same First Amendment that protects freedom of speech and freedom of religion is being used to justify keeping a strip club open because that's an expression of free speech. But worshiping God in the way that you see fit, that's not allowed. That's not an expression of religious liberty. Same First Amendment. It's like they read the first part and just kind of skipped over that or, or marked it out in their copy of the Constitution and then skipped over to the free speech part, and even that is violent sometimes, and we've got to cut that out sometimes. So it just depends on the situation. That's where situational ethics comes in here. So if you're keeping track, that's their justification. And on top of that, apparently lap dances perfectly all right and not a threat to public health when we're going through a pandemic. But going to church and singing to God, that that's totally dangerous, and you're not allowed to do that absolutely forbidden we cannot allow that risk to public health you've got to be kidding me people that is one of the most absurd things that i've ever heard and i think it's very telling that there is a preacher that is actually reclassifying his church as a strip club just to get the same rights afforded to them this is the world that we are living in now start panicking america When you say that you don't recognize your country, I mean, this is it. But this is not the only example of the left being a rival religion that is competing and and thinks it's perfectly okay for you to engage in their religious practices, but not your religious practices. There's actually several of these that have happened over the course of several months. Planned Parenthood, remember, was deemed an essential medical service now you couldn't go in and get surgeries if it could be put off you couldn't go in and get for example a cancer screening but you could go in and kill your baby that you can do we we must make sure that that is maintained at all times there can never be even a hiccup or an inconvenience to a woman that is wanting to lynch her child in the womb as long as that is what she's wanting to do yeah that that has to stay rolling even during the shutdowns and this happened in red states and blue states it happened right here in alabama so you can engage in the child sacrifice of the left's religion, but you're not allowed to go and worship God. That, that has to stay shut down. That's just too dangerous and we, we can't do that. All of the other non-essential medical practices, including things like cancer screenings, including things like, uh, there, there were even people, even though this wasn't banned by the law, there were even people not going in to get their chemo as a result of this thing. But yeah, Planned Parenthood, totally safe, you can go and do that, and, and we can't do that. You see, that, that's a right that has to be protected at all costs. There, there must be no exceptions to the imaginary right, which was derived from a derivative right, which was derived from another derivative right in Roe v. Wade. That, that has to be protected and preserved, but the one that's sitting right in front of you in plain English, that we do have religious liberty, that one we can just ignore. That one just goes out the second that there's a virus that pops up at our front door. BLM protests, you may remember, that there were people wall to wall, shoulder to shoulder in LA and Minneapolis and, and several other big cities around the country. Those were just deemed too essential. And there were even a lot of these government officials going out and participating in these, Mayor Bill de Blasio in New York, saying how proud he was of his daughter for going out and doing this all during a pandemic. People, shoulder to shoulder, no mask, and whenever people in the media or elected officials were asked about that, they're like, well, this is just, this moment is just too important and it's worth the risk. And in fact, that makes these protests even more important because look how brave these are. Again, if you engage in their religious practices and their religious rituals, it's okay. You can't engage in yours. We've got to stop that. That's just too dangerous. You might hurt yourself. And finally, the celebrations over Joe Biden's election, when the media called the election for Joe Biden, there were people out uh, in the streets, you know, some not so peacefully, but others just out and protesting and in big groups. And they were talking about how great that was and how there's a party. And in some cases, the same media person, which in one hour, uh, sorry, the span of six hours, was praising all of these celebrations and like, there's dancing in the streets and celebration. How great it is that they're so happy that Joe Biden has taken the White House and then six hours later, oh, it's so terrible that these guys at Notre Dame are storming the field because they're excited that they won a football game. You guys are irresponsible and want to kill grandma. How dare you? This is six hours apart from one another. And yet, again, and I'm not saying that Football is a religious experience of the right. I'm just saying that there is an obvious double standard there. If you're engaging in their religious rituals, you're okay. If you're engaging in your religious rituals that they don't see the value in, then it's not all right. This is religious persecution, plain and simple. There's really no other way to look at it. You're, it's okay if you worship our gods, the gods of secularism, the god of safetyism, the god of humanism and relative morality— You can worship those gods. You can't worship your god. That's essentially what the left has said. So we're going to take a quick break here, and we're going to go to a couple other stories. Uh, Ellen Page is no longer going by Ellen Page. She is now trans, so we're going to cover that story in just a second when we come back here on Tactics. Once again, it is time for my very favorite part of the show. And guys, as much as I love talking politics with you, and I do, I wouldn't do this if I didn't, my favorite part of the show is always going to be when I have an excuse to eat a delicious cookie from insomniacookies.com. That's right, it's time for yet another cookie review from them. And if you happen to be in one of the cities that is blessed enough to have an Insomnia Cookies physical store, Whether you're in Tuscaloosa, Auburn, Birmingham, or Mobile, or you happen to be swinging by one of those cities for whatever reason. Maybe you're there to uh, watch your favorite college team play, though probably not this year, unfortunately. But if you are, swing by and and check out their store, or you can do what I do, which is because I'm not near one of those stores. I live in Montgomery. I order one of these amazing boxes from insomniacookies.com, which is filled with all kinds of delicious goodness. And today we're going to be reviewing kind of a classic, but Insomniacookies.com's take on that classic. This is the M&M cookie. And lots of different companies do the M&M cookie, but I'm really looking forward to what Insomniacookies.com version of it tastes like. And as always, this is the very first time I'm trying an Insomnia M&M cookie, so we'll see how it goes. Mm. i like it there's a good cookie to m&m ratio because you can definitely taste the cookie but the thing that is nice about the m&m this is true of m&m cookies in general but you get that nice crunchiness but if it gets too loaded up with m&ms then you might as well just be eating a handful of m&ms and you get too few It tastes like just having a sugar cookie with some M&M's thrown on top of it. This one also has chocolate chips in it, not just M&M's. So, I feel that that helps the the chocolate to cookie ratio. And uh, M&M's spread throughout, so I think that's really helping this one. Oh yeah, very good cookie. And I do recommend doing what insomniacookies.com recommends you do. Which is, in the process of this when you do have to order the cookies online like I do, you're obviously not getting it fresh out of the oven. So what you do is you pop it in the microwave for like maybe 15, 20 seconds, something like that. And it comes out it's just like the fresh baked cookie. And that really helps with the M&M because the shells stay crunchy, but the inside is sort of gooey and melty. And that's really, really good. This makes for a really good cookie. So well done yet again. If you want one of these, check out insomniacookies.com. That's insomniacookies and welcome back to the program thank you so much for being with us here on tactics be sure to if you're watching on youtube or facebook or twitter wherever you're watching us make sure to like and subscribe to the channel because that helps us defeat the evil cyber overlords at YouTube and defeat the algorithm. You know, if you like and subscribe, there is at least a tiny chance that you might see some of our content, despite the fact that we're being throttled by big tech. So we certainly do appreciate that and also appreciate our great sponsor, insomniacookies.com. Now let's go ahead and get to the latest news story. This one actually just broke a few hours before I came on the air. Apparently, Ellen Page, you may remember her from movies like X-Men Days of Future Past, which is probably my favorite role that she's been in. She's in Inception, she's in Juno. I didn't see Juno, but, you know, uh, it's interesting because I've heard it's actually really good and I've just never watched it, but uh, been, been in a lot of stuff. Apparently she is sold out because I don't know if you realize this, but Ellen Page was a lesbian. She's not now, but she was a lesbian, so she was a woman that liked women. Apparently, that is no longer the case. Apparently now, Ellen Page has completely sold out, and she is now trans and referring to herself as Elliot Page. But she's a guy, presumably, if we're we're going by her logic. Follow the math with me on this one, and let's go down this this journey. (laughs) She's apparently a guy but still likes women, and if you're a guy that likes women, and she's white, so wouldn't that make her a straight white man? So I'd just like to say to Ellen Page, welcome to the patriarchy. I mean, I appreciate you selling out your lesbian brethren to become a straight white man. So yeah, welcome to the club. I appreciate it. I welcome Elliot Page, to our side of this, I you know I think the lesbians are going to be pretty mad at her for selling out and, and becoming part of the patriarchy. But that seems to be the the one that is is she now like the lesbian equivalent of an Uncle Tom? Has she <laughs> she sold out on that? You know, when uh, a couple of years ago when the The trans were trying to get into the gay pride movement and the gay pride parade there in London, and you had a bunch of angry lesbians that were counter-protesting the trans people, which, I mean, was hilarious on a number of levels. But when you had the lesbians actually going out and protesting the trans people saying trans erase lesbians, which, by the way, according to their own logic, actually does make sense, because you can't be a lesbian, a woman that likes women, If women aren't a thing, if you don't believe women exist and it's all subjective and you can change at any time, then you can't be like, well, I'm a woman that only likes women because that doesn't mesh. See, this is the problem when you abandon reason for madness, when you engage in a worldview that is based on feelings rather than facts. Because everything's up in the air and it's all situational and because of that, nothing makes sense. That's just how it rolls. And so if you're going with Ellen Page's own logic that because she says she's a man, she just is a man now. She's not a trans man or what, she's just a man. And if she is really a man, in every sense of the word, just like me, she's as much man as I am, despite the fact that she, you know, has lady parts and all of that stuff. If she's just a man now, then that makes her, since she likes women, a cisgender, in other words, straight, or normal, a straight white man. So she sold out to the patriarchy according to her own reason. And this is the the problem that you run into with trying to engage in all of this mental gymnastics. So let's go ahead and read her official statement that she issued on Instagram. We won't read the whole thing, but we're going to read some significant portions of it because, quite frankly, it just entertains me. So let's go ahead and look at the first little segment of this. This is her introduction where she says, Hi, friends. I wanted to share with you that I am trans. My pronouns are he, they. Okay, shouldn't that be he, him? I I, I don't know. I don't understand. I'm only conversational and bullcrap. I'm not fluent. And my name is Elliot. I feel lucky to be writing this, to be here, to have arrived at this place in my life. So that on its head is is pretty interesting. I find it interesting that she chose a gender-neutral name. Because I've actually met girls named Elliot. It's rare, but that is a name that can be used for a man or a woman. Maybe Ellen decides that she changes her mind, and even though she's Elliot now, she's girl Elliot for the day. And then later she, I don't know, has something for lunch and decides, I feel like a man. Eating that steak sandwich really made me feel manly. So now I'm a man for the rest of the day. I guess if that's the case, then picking a gender-neutral name like Elliot would work. Maybe that's the plan? I don't know. Again, I only kind of understand the bullcrap because I'm here every day. But I do find that interesting, and maybe hasn't she hasn't like totally fully committed to it, and that's the reason that she went with the gender-obscure name, I guess is the correct way to say it. But the interesting part here, and I think this really gets to... Not the root of the issue, but certainly the, the reason that she made this big public announcement for it. This is the, the biggest paragraph, the biggest chunk of the letter, and we're going to read this real quickly here. I also ask for patience. My joy is real, but it is also fragile. All right, so I want to make a, a quick point here. If you understand joy in the biblical sense, joy is not fragile. Joy is rock solid. And the reason I say that is because the whole point of joy is that it's not happiness. It's not something that comes and goes. It doesn't shift with your mood. Joy is something that is a constant. And so that's how I know the joy that she's talking about is actually not real. Because real joy is there regardless of your circumstances. That's how Paul can say that he counts all of the things that he has gone through for the sake of Christ, including beating, being shipwrecked, being stoned nearly to the point of death, being cast out by people, he can count all of that as joy, because joy is a constant and is not dependent on your circumstances. So, just that quick bit of commentary right there. And Ellen Page, or Elliot Page, whatever they want to refer to themselves now, as continues on, The truth is, despite feeling profoundly happy right now and knowing how much privilege I carry, I am also scared. I'm scared of the invasiveness and the hate and the jokes and of violence to be clear i am not trying to dampen the moment that is joyous and one that i celebrate oh but i bet you're gonna try real hard Uh, but i want to address the full picture the statistics are staggering the discrimination towards trans people is rife insidious and cruel resulting in horrific consequences in 2020 alone it has been reported that at least 40 transgender people have been murdered the majority of which were black and Latinx, trans women. Okay, I think I understand that sentence, but I'm not sure, so we're just going to move on. To the political leaders who work to criminalize trans health and deny our rights to exist, and all of those with a massive platform who continue to spew hostility towards the trans community... Oh good, she's talking about me now. You have the blood on your hands. Unleash a, You unleash a fury of vile and demeaning rage that lands on the shoulders of the trans community a community in which 40% of trans adults report attempting suicide mm-hmm. enough is enough you are you aren't being canceled you are hurting people i am one of those people and we will not be silent in the face of your attacks all right so there's a lot to digest here but i'm going to give you the long and short of it so first of all the stats do not tell the story that she claims. Because in the, the thing about the 40 trans people being murdered, remember that we live in a country of 328 million people. 40 is not a big number. Now, granted, the trans community is a significantly smaller portion of that. In fact, it's, it's not even one whole percent. It's a very, very tiny fraction of the American populace considers themselves trans. And I don't know how significant a portion of that would be 40, but 40 people in a country that size, that's very, very small. I mean, you could pick literally any demographic or special interest group or whatever you want to call it, I mean, it could be something as objective as black people or as abstract as, I don't know, something ideological, just NRA members or something like that. And I guarantee you, you would probably find more than 40 people there. Now, maybe as a percentage, it's, it's large. I really don't know because I don't have the stats in front of me, but 40 people is not like an earth shattering number in a country this size. And the other thing that she kind of leaves out of that is that a lot of the people that she was just talking about in that 40 group, those murders are, of course, horrible, and I would never condone any kind of violence against anybody for something like that. I mean, unless you're acting in self-defense, violence is just never acceptable. Obviously, I would condemn anybody that would do something like that. However, a lot of the time, and this doesn't justify it, and I'm just telling you the truth. A lot of the times what we've found with these murders of trans people is it was a prostitute. Prostitution is very big in the trans community. A much higher percentage of trans people engage in illegal prostitution than people that are outside that community. But a lot of times what happens is that it's somebody that tells someone they are one gender, and then they get in the bedroom and get ready to do their business, and it's somebody else. Now, does that justify killing someone? Absolutely not. But what I am saying here is, is they act as though what they're trying to drum up in your head is this mental image and a narrative that there are random people like me, evangelical, white, cisgender males that are just going out and killing trans people for no reason other than the fact that they happen to be trans. That's the narrative they want you to craft in your head when they give you A statistic like this but the simple fact of the matter is normally when this happens it is people that are involved in some kind of prostitution or drug deal they're engaged in a crime already and because of the lifestyle choices they made they wind up being murdered this actually happened in the state of Alabama you may remember a little over a year ago if I'm not mistaken there was a big deal made about a trans person being murdered but they were never able to figure out whether or not it was actually because the person was trans or the other person even knew whether that person was trans or not. And that's another thing too. This also leaves out what if the person was just randomly murdered, had nothing to do with they were trans. The other person may not have even known that they were trans and they wound up being murdered. Now that's still a horrible thing, but it, also doesn't tell the story that Ellen Page is trying to craft for you that these people are specifically being targeted for no reason other than them being trans. Again, if you took any other random demographic in the country and measured how often they were being measured, that in and of itself is not proof of some kind of systematic execution of these people going on. You know, they're there are thousands and thousands of white people that are murdered, far more than the 40 she's talking about. Does that mean that there is some kind of genocide going on against white people? No. And so she acts as as though this fact solidifies her argument, but provides no detail surrounding it specifically to try to make it seem a lot worse than it actually is. If somebody did kill someone merely because they are trans, that's, of course, a horrible thing to do. But this stat doesn't speak to that whatsoever. And then she goes on and talks about the 40% of trans people that have attempted suicide, which, again, of course, is horrible, and I do not condone that, but that's trans people doing that to themselves. And they will say... Well, yes, they are doing it to themselves, but it's because other people are, be, are bullying them and it's because of the rampant discrimination. See, here's the thing, though. You would think that that statistic of how many trans people have tried to commit suicide would go down in a country that is more accepting of that, right? That would stand to reason that if you're looking at maybe your Scandinavian countries or you're looking at some of your European countries that are more evolved than us, on this issue and tend to have less of a stigma that goes with it than more altruistic countries when it comes to trans people and trans rights and all this other stuff. Well, those would be the countries where the suicide rate goes down, right? Actually, no, it's almost identical. And so even in a country where this kind of bullying just doesn't go on, or at least not nearly to the levels that it does in the United States, the rate of this doesn't drop. By the way, it also doesn't drop post-operation. So if they go in and they have the sex change operation, the rate of suicide remains the same even post-operation. And so all of the narratives that they try to throw at you with this, they're not true. They simply are not based in reality. But again, just like Ellen Page is demonstrating here, when you live in a world that is dictated by your feelings, reality is really little more than just an inconvenience. And that's the reason that they can throw this out there and think that that makes them right because they feel it really strongly. Ergo, they must be correct. The second part of that is, even if all of this were true, even if every word of what she was saying were true, that narrative that she was crafting, that there are people that are going out and killing trans people just because they're trans, even if that were correct it would still be the fault of the murderer, not the people that are saying things that she doesn't like about trans people. You remember when a Bernie Sanders supporter, someone that actually worked for his campaign, so not just a Bernie voter, not just somebody that really liked Bernie Sanders, someone that literally worked for Bernie Sanders' campaign, tried to murder a tenth of Congress, specifically Republicans, asked the guard on his way in there, before he knew who the guy was, hey, are those Republicans or or Democrats playing on that softball field? Oh, it's Republicans. Okay, let me grab my guns and murder all of them. That's what happened there. Did I blame Bernie Sanders? No. Did any prominent conservative blame Bernie Sanders for that? No. Because unless Bernie Sanders actually called for violence, it's not Bernie Sanders' fault. Knows is a Bernie Sanders person maybe more prone to that? I don't know, maybe. It certainly seems like they're certainly more prone to it than people on the right. There have been more people that were friendlier to Bernie Sanders' cause that have engaged in crazy behavior like that, but it doesn't matter. It's still not Bernie Sanders' fault. And so this is a standard that I maintain, whether it's somebody on the right or somebody on the left. And I do not understand how somebody like Ellen or Elliot Page, whatever they want to be called now, I do not understand how they can seriously say that this is comes from that idea that well I feel really bad about that language and I feel as though you shouldn't say that ergo I'm going to try to justify regulating you out of saying that that you shouldn't be allowed to say that. And that's how she's saying that speech is literally violence no just like the just like the motto of the show says speech isn't violence. And so she tries to make that case, but there's just no truth to it. And, and then third and finally, even if both of those things were true, even if you had a situation to where uh, they they actually were responsible, the people that are saying things that she doesn't like about transgender people, that those people were responsible for the actions of other people unconnected to them that murder trans people, even if that were the case, which of course it's not her next statement would still be false, which is, you're not being canceled, you're hurting people. Okay, those two things are not mutually exclusive. Let's let's take a quick crash course in logic here. Whether you like them or not, whether you think that them being canceled is good or not, they are being canceled. If you have a show one day, you say something that people don't like, there's a big outrage and you get fired from your job, that is being canceled. Now, even if you think it was justified, even if you think the guy should lose his job, I of course don't, that even if you are of that belief, you can't say it's not being canceled. So again, words have meanings, but if you're living in a moral and logical vacuum, you will not find morality or logic. That's just how this works. But what this segment of her statement here does prove is that I don't know if she genuinely believes this about herself or not, that she genuinely believes that she is a man, or isn't i don't know because i'm not inside ellen page's head but i do know that at least partially the motive of this had nothing to do with being true to herself or whatever other gobbledygook she wants to throw out there it was a it was a cudgel to bludgeon her political opponents with because that's what she really wanted right what she really wanted to do was not to remain true to herself or to speak her truth or however else the media uh, the media wants to spend this in her favor. Ultimately, what this was is, I don't like conservatives and want to bludgeon them over the head, and this is an effective way to do it in her mind. To say that now I'm part of this community, and so I'm going to speak out about this. That's her rationale. She states it right there. She's not hiding the ball here. It's It's very obvious what is happening here. And then this, ultimately the virtue signal is what she wanted out of it. Ultimately, that is what she wanted. That That's, her, which, I mean, to her credit, I guess that is being true to herself because that's what she really wanted. So in that sense, that's why she launches off into this moral tirade when doing what presumably should have just been about her being uh, authentic or whatever and revealing her identity to everybody else. She launches off in an attack against people she doesn't like because the truth is that's her real motive. That's what she wants more than anything else. And then this is kind of exemplified in this final piece of this particular statement by Ellen or Elliot Page. I love that I am trans. I love that, I, and I love that I am queer. And the more I hold myself close and fully embrace who I am, the more I dream, the more my heart grows, and the more I thrive. To all trans people who deal with harassment, self loathing, abuse, and the threat of violence every day, I see you, I love you, and I will do everything I can to change this world for the better. Now, I don't know if Ellen Page is thinking this deeply about it, but the thing is, she hit the nail on the head in this one. She perfectly summarized and gave a case study in a very short amount of time, to her credit, of really what is at the core of not only the trans movement, but this entire postmodernist thought process, whether it's being gay or just believing that all morality is subjective and everything's up in the air and truth is just kind of based on whatever you think is right. She really hit the nail on the head with all of it. I think inadvertently because even a blind squirrel finds a nut every now and then. She perfectly summarized that what is at the core of all this is self-love. The idea that you are your own God, and the more that I love myself and embrace myself, that's what she says at the end of this right here. It's like, the more I love myself, the more I can dream, and the more I can thrive. Again, because it's all based on feelings. There is no such thing as a moral objectivity that exists outside of me. Ergo, the more I love myself because I am my own God, the better that I am. You see, the thinking in Western civilization for the vast majority of our history, at least since the onset of Christendom, was that, you know, whether or not it's good or not to love yourself, what's really more important is to seek God's favor, to do what God wants you to do and to live up to His standard because He is the moral measure. I mean, that's what we're taught by Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7 is that with the same measure that you judge, you shall also be judged, and that the Bible is what is going to act as the mirror, which comes from the epistles, that we are going to use to gauge ourselves, and a man should every single Sunday when when we're partaking of the Lord's Supper, Jesus instructs us to let a man examine himself. We're supposed to be constantly under the we should be in the mode of self-reflection in order to better ourselves and bring ourselves more closely in line with what God wants us to be. The church of self-love just throws all that out, and you are the center of the universe. You get to make your own decisions about what is right is what is wrong, and you get to speak your truth and just be authentic to yourself. See, Jesus says the opposite. He says, deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me. It's not about you. And it amazes me that somehow people view this as compassionate and just. Because the whole idea of compassion and justice and moral goodness, just those concepts, would mean what? That there is some force outside of you making those decisions. Because if it's all just what you want to do, then how can you call that good? Maybe I want to kill somebody. How is that bad? If I am my own moral arbiter, then isn't maybe I was just born a murderer and killing people is tr- being true to myself. See, they don't have a good answer for that and why that would be bad because you cannot justify that if you're living in a morally ambiguous world. And this is the problem with everything that the left has been preaching for the past couple of decades is that if you throw out all objectivity, the only thing you're left with is each person doing what they think is best in their own mind and you wind up with people like Ellen Page that can literally say, I am a man and that is a good thing. And this last little bit, which is just a, a, just a self-gratifying pat on the back to herself for being so authentic. That's really where this whole thing culminates. That I get to be my own God and I get to make my own morality. That's why I think the gay pride thing is so appropriate. Because it is pride. It is the idea that, well, God doesn't get to decide my gender. I get to decide my gender. God doesn't get to decide who I should and should not be attracted to. I get to decide all of those things. And so ultimately, that's what you wind up with. A world of utter chaos where nothing makes sense. But let's move on to some of the media's reaction because I do think that this is worth bringing up. This is the NBC News headline that they, uh, the article that they tweeted out that I saw earlier today. Brave and beautiful, celebs support Juno star Elliot Page after he, notice that they're changing the pronouns here, comes out as trans. And this whole piece is nothing but a fluff piece talking about How brave this person is and how it's great that he, using the way that they describe it, that he has come out and done this and it's just a long list of other celebrity tweets uh, basically congratulating and patting Ellen Page on the back for all of this. And in all of this, my first reaction was, it's interesting that they refer to it as brave in the same article where NBC, a major news organization, is giving kudos to this person and then giving a long list of all the other people that are giving kudos to this person. How is that brave? You know, when the institutions are all on your side and the media is all on your side and the corporations are all on your side and the people in your own industry, in Ellen Page's case, the film industry, is all on her side. And she's doing this in a state like California where basically everybody agrees with her and is going to congratulate and laud praise upon her for all this. I fail to see the bravery here. You know, maybe if you're doing this and you're living in Mississippi and you happen to be the minister of a small congregation there, and you know that the entire community is going to turn on you and you're going to lose your job for this, okay, I may still disagree with you being trans, and I may still think that's morally incorrect, but if that is the case, you coming out is brave. There's nothing about this with Ellen Page that is brave whatsoever. And by the way, if this indeed is true, what we're hearing about her, that basically she has been a male this entire time, and just didn't come out, then isn't... Doesn't that mean that at the very least it's, you know, it's been delayed for all these years because she's a coward and refused to come out? Again, I don't buy into the whole bravery narrative anyway, but I'm trying to figure out how somebody that does buy into all this stuff sees this as brave. I actually commented on this and somebody responded, well, you know maybe this is what's really more important is that there are other trans people watching this to think I can come out to. Okay, well, maybe that's the case. And maybe even if they're in a position where that would be something that is frowned upon with them, maybe even that would be brave for that person. It's still not brave for Ellen to do it. Because when she does it and all of her family's with her and all of the people she works with are with her and all of the people in the industry that she's in are with her. She's never going to lose a job because of this. She's never going to... You know have to uh, she, she's never going to have to struggle or, or go through any hard times for this, and she's doing it in a community where everyone agrees with her. I'm sorry, I failed to see how this is a brave thing by her at this point. And what's funny is NBC doesn't even realize the irony in calling it brave in the same in the exact same article where it's everybody lauding lots of praise on her. You know, Martin Luther King knowing he's probably going to be assassinated for the stances he takes and pointing out that people are discriminating against people that look like him, that's brave. What Ellen Page is doing is not brave. Not in the slightest. And what's even funnier about all this is that one person in the Twitterverse responded with this and I just love that this was the very first response. I didn't have to dig through this because I usually don't, you know, show tweets from randos on Twitter. I didn't have to dig through all of this. I didn't have to, like, find this one specific tweet. It was literally the first response to this article that was tweeted out by NBC, and I just love that this is the very first response. Thank you for your coverage of Ellen Page at NBC News, but please don't use trans people's dead names in articles. There was no need to say formally known as, especially since he is a celebrity, uh, the more you know, hashtag respect trans people. Look, you're never woke enough. You're never woke enough. Even something like this that is nothing but a obvious media fluff piece that was designed specifically to grandulize and let people know in the most immaculate way possible that Ellen Page is now trans and is now a man and they used all the right pronouns and they were very careful to... Uh, do only positive coverage, even then the person is discontent because they just happen to mention their former name as a part of the news story. It doesn't matter what you do. You're never woke enough. You will never satisfy these people, media. You will never satisfy these people, celebrities. No matter what happens, there will always be somebody that goes around saying how you're not actually woke enough. It's just how it is. There's no point in even trying to appease these people. And corporations... Please remember that when you do whatever stupid thing it is that the left begs you to do or tells you that you must do in order to continue to engage in business. Remember that no matter what you do, it will never, ever, ever, ever be woke enough to satisfy the woke left. Now, Variety reports that Netflix is actually going to go back and retroactively change all of the credits that include Ellen Page to reflect her new name, Elliot Page. And this is important because the thing that she's engaged in right now is a series called The Umbrella Academy on Netflix. So they're going to, I assume, go back into all of their credits and edit and actually change their name. So now we're not even allowed to mention that at one point for a lengthy period in her career, she was going around and referring to herself as Ellen. So even Ellen Page circa yesterday was wrong and incorrect and unwoke, and we must go and correct all records of this ever happening. It's one of the most absurd, ridiculous things that I've ever seen. Like, I wasn't always a Christian, and I'm ashamed, you know, I, I grew up around the church my whole life, but there are certainly things in my past that I'm ashamed of. I don't go back and try to retroactively change and and delete all evidence of anything that I ever did where I was wrong. I I, I don't understand, now I obviously don't think that this is the correct thing to do anyway, but I don't even understand if I believed that being trans was all right, that this would be the thing to do. It just seems very, very bizarre to me that this is the case. And another thing that I want to bring up here Ellen Page's character, or Elliot Page's character, in this series, The Umbrella Academy, is a woman that is straight. This woman likes men. And so, my question is how can they allow a straight white man to take away the voice? Of a straight white woman by playing a straight white woman because this is the logic that the left subjects themselves to that somebody like scarlett johansson who is you know an actor whose job is to pretend to be something that she is not that's the whole point of being an actor that scarlett johansson is not allowed to play a trans person and we must cancel the movie in which she was supposed to be playing a trans person and scarlett johansson just goes along with this you know, we we have to... Granted, it's not like I'm going to miss the movie. It doesn't sound like something I would be interested in. But we have to cancel that movie because it's just completely incomprehensible that we would have a straight person play a trans person. That that can't be. We can't allow that to happen because you're taking away an opportunity from somebody that is trans. But if that's the case, isn't Ellen Page a straight white male Isn't Z taking away an opportunity from a straight woman? Aren't you taking a woman's role away from her by playing something that you're not? See, the left should be outraged at that by their own logic. But of course they're not, because somehow Ellen, a straight white man like me, is is now... Uh, somehow in the protected class because even they acknowledge that really, no, she's not a straight white man. And that's the point of all of this. You see, she's trying, I think where this all goes back to, and I could be wrong, but this is just Caleb's take on this. And I mean, that's why you're here, right? To listen to my takes on things. I think what's really going on here is that Ellen Page, inadvertently, without intending for this to be, Made probably the most pro life movie up until the point that planned or sorry, that unplanned came out. I mean, obviously, unplanned right now is probably the most pro life movie that has ever been made. But I would say, probably, if not second place, a contender for second place is the movie Juno. And Ellen Page got her start from that movie. This was her big breakout role that launched her into the movie industry to go on and play a lot of these other roles. And so, what's interesting about that, and I I really don't hate Ellen Page as an actress. I love the movie Inception. Days of Future Past, she's actually pretty good in that. I've always liked Shadowcat as a character. I'm I'm a big comic book guy, so you guys know that about me. But... Because that is where she got her start, because she accidentally contributed to, and that was sort of the launch point of her career, making an extremely pro-life movie, And even though I don't think that that was her intention, I think she's been trying to wipe away the original sin of that ever since. That she's trying to prove that she's not only woke, that she is the wokest person in all of Hollywood, which, granted, is very difficult to do. And so because of that, she continues to go further and further left just to try to prove that, no, I really am one of you and I'm so sorry and and trying to engage in penance for having ever given an even slightly or accidentally pro-life message to people. I really do think that's where a lot of this stems from and the reason that she does a lot of the things that she does. All right, so we're going to take a quick break here and we'll be back with the Daily Dose of Stupid and the Chaplain's Report and wrap things up right here on Tactics. Uh, this is a News Radio 1440 podcast. That was stupid. I know it was stupid. Really stupid. Hey, I just said it was stupid. <laughs> and for today's daily dose of stupid, <laughs> remember, this is deeply, deeper, deeply religious, devout Catholic Joe Biden in his Thanksgiving Day address. Watch. And if we do, and I'm sure we can, we can proclaim the palmist with the palmist who wrote these following words. The Lord is my strength and my shield. All right. So there's something I want you to notice about this clip. And so I'm going to play it again here uh, just a second. But I, I want you to really zero in on watch his eyes and watch how he's paying attention because this is the advantage of having somebody like me that's worked with the teleprompter before. You can actually see him where he gets lost. So watch his facial expressions and watch how hard he's trying to figure out what he's supposed to say here. So watch his eyes. And if we do, and I'm sure we can... All right, it's right here. We can proclaim... See, that's where he stumbles. He's trying so hard to figure out what that word is. With the palmist who wrote these following words. (laughs) The Lord is my strength and my shield. So obviously what's happening there is he's trying to say the psalmist. In other words, the person who wrote the book of Psalms. Now there's Obviously, several different authors of the book of Psalms. David wrote a bunch of them. Solomon contributed a few, so on and so forth. You know, we'll, we'll dispense with the Bible lesson for another day. But that, that's why if you want to be safe, you say the word psalmist when you're talking about the psalms, because that covers whoever happened to be writing that one particular psalm. <laughs> Joe Biden is so lost on this and so biblically illiterate that he's never heard, apparently, of the book of Psalms. I want you to think about that for a second, because we're not dealing with one of the more obscure books of the Bible. Of all the famous books of the Bible, Psalms is probably close to the top. Now, maybe the four Gospels, maybe Genesis and Revelation, I would say you can throw Exodus in there because a lot of people know about Exodus, but those would be kind of the contenders for what's the most popular or most famous book in the Bible, we're not talking about Haggai or Habakkuk. (laughs) These are not obscure minor prophets. These are things that people that are not Christians even should know. People that have never gone to church should at least be somewhat familiar with, if nothing else, just by sheer osmosis of living in a country where there are religious people, should know the book of Psalms. This is Joe Biden, who has been on this earth for 70 plus years, that apparently doesn't know what a psalm is. But don't worry, guys, he's deeply religious and his faith really inspires everything that he does. Has this guy ever picked up a Bible? Seriously? And that's the thing that I think <laughs> bothers me so much about it because. You can see just how befuddled he is. He has no idea what this word is, has no idea how to pronounce it. It would be one thing if it were just a normal gaffe, but you can tell by the way he reacts that this is not just like a mere reading error. He's this is a word he's completely unfamiliar with. And (laughs) I've made Bible related mistakes. I've made them on the air before. It happens. And with as much content as I do, as much as often as I'm in front of a camera, especially dealing with Bible-sensitive material, you're going to occasionally make those mistakes. I try to keep them to a minimum, but they happen. This is a guy that can't even pronounce the name of the book in which the <laughs> Scripture itself is found. I, I mean, this is rookie-level stuff. There are a group of kids in front of my church every single Sunday night, back when we had Sunday night services before the virus hit, every single Sunday night the kids gather up on the front pews and they name off the books of the bible and none of them have ever pronounced the book of psalms the palmist and i'm talking about two and three year olds that are doing this and joe biden isn't even at their level of biblical literacy when it comes to this now to be fair anybody remember two corinthians you may remember, if I'm not mistaken, this speech was given at Liberty University, which made it even funnier, that President Trump, who was kind of the darling of evangelicals, or some evangelicals, I'll put it that way, in the Republican primary, and this is a thing that we, he was mocked relentlessly for by people like me, by the way, I might add. Uh, I was, thought that was pretty funny, too. But at least with two Corinthians, that Trump accidentally says two Corinthians instead of second Corinthians, at least he got the name of the book itself right the only thing he messed up is the 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 um the number in front of it and how it's commonly pronounced at least he got corinthians right and corinthians is a much more obscure book of the bible than psalms and i don't mind mocking both in fact i have so obviously i don't have a problem with that what bothers me is The media picked up on it, and that thing was on repeat for like 24 hours for the next news cycle. You didn't hear anybody after Thanksgiving talking about Joe Biden screwing up the name of a book of the Bible. That was nowhere in mainstream media, and so there is an obvious double standard there, but that's basically old news that the media was in the tank for Biden at this point. But these are people... That are elected by people that are similarly biblically illiterate. And in this last go round, because of, you know, Donald Trump surprised me on a lot of things and governed significantly more conservatively than I ever thought he would, I did vote for President Trump in the last election and was very much pulling for him to win, still pulling for him to win, in fact. But this is a commentary on the state of our country at this point. That the people at the very top, the ones whom we have selected as our leaders, just have no familiarity with the Bible whatsoever. It's not important to them because ultimately it's not important to us. There was a time where our leaders were biblical scholars. They knew the Bible better than the average person. When you look at, and I'm looking at a, you can't see it, I know it's off camera, but I'm looking at a life-size print, an actual-size print of the Declaration of Independence right here hanging on my wall, signed by 56 men. Nearly half, not quite, but nearly half of them had advanced college-level or above Bible degrees. Those were our leaders, at that period in our history. And now the people that, even if you believe that the election was stolen, either way, whether it's Trump or Biden, the one that we have selected as our leader now barely has any biblical literacy. We have fallen a very long way in that respect, and it is sad to see. But ultimately, the thing that I dislike the most about this whole situation surrounding biden and not knowing enough about the scripture to even be able to pronounce the book of psalms correctly is that i can't stand the bs that's what gets under my skin more than anything else look don't tell me that this guy is intelligent and sharp and on top of things and somebody that people can relate to and somebody that is a devout catholic and, and His faith inspires the things that he does when the man can't even pronounce the book of Psalms. I don't buy it. Don't pee on me and tell me that it's raining. That's the thing that bothers me the most about it. I mean, it would be one thing. It would be one thing if Joe Biden were like, yeah, Bible's really not all that important to me. God's really not all that important to me. Just not my thing. I'm not even necessarily saying he has to tell me that he's an atheist, even though, you know, his stances on abortion and gay marriage and that eight-year-olds ought to be able to lop off their privates and start referring to themselves as the opposite gender would pretty much inform me on that. And that would be far more important and is more important than what he gives lip service to. But I could kind of understand him or, or wouldn't be irritated as much by it. If Joe Biden can't pronounce the word Psalms and isn't necessarily somebody that claims to have any connection to spirituality, but when you're using that as a rationale for why people should vote for you. Kind of hard for me to buy into that. That That's what the thing that gets under my skin the most is that you're trying to push this idea that this guy is super intelligent and sharp and aware and can think on his feet. And his old age isn't a problem. He's not really senile. And oh yeah, he's also somebody that is a faithful Christian that will be guided somewhat by the Word of God. And then he can't even pronounce the Book of Psalms. I'm not going to buy that. I'm sorry. You need to look for someone else to sell that bill of goods to because I ain't buying it. Speaking of God's Word, let's go to the chaplain's report. In 1775 Chaplain's report today comes from the book of 1 Samuel. We're going to be continuing our series in 1 Samuel. And for those of you who may not know or weren't really following the previous ones, may not have seen those, just suffice it to say that the thing that we've seen most recently is that Saul has started to think of David as an enemy. And now is kind of in the phase where he's devising different plots and schemes to try to get rid of David because he's jealous of him and is afraid that David is going to eventually wind up taking his throne, which, of course, we know with hindsight that he does. But this is the suspicion that Saul has that has caused him to go after David and try to kill him multiple times, despite the fact that David has never done anything except be loyal and do exactly what Saul has asked him to do. But nonetheless, this is the episode we find ourselves in in 1 Samuel 18, verses 25 through 27. Saul then said, This is what you shall say to David. The king does not desire any dowry, in other words, exchange for his daughter being married to David, does not desire any dowry except a hundred foreskins of the Philistines to take vengeance on the king's enemies. But Saul plotted to have David fall by the hand of the Philistines. When his servants told David these words, it pleased David to become the king's son-in-law. So, before the time had expired... David set out and went, and he and his men, and fatally struck two hundred men among the Philistines. Then David brought their foreskins, and they presented all two hundred of them to the king, so that he might become the king's son-in-law. And Saul gave him his daughter uh, Michal as his wife of Saul, So uh, so his name was held in high esteem. So this little episode in David's life is the story of how he wound up being Saul's son-in-law and and also married his first wife Michal. But it's one of the stranger stories in the Bible. This is an odd thing to demand of David, and we're not. We see this in a couple of other scenarios in Scripture, but not many. It wasn't enough to just kill the enemies of Saul, he wanted him to, as proof, presumably, bring back their foreskins. You know, there's a lot of things in the Bible that I think would be a crappy job to have, uh, but I got to believe that David's foreskin collector has got to be the worst one (laughs) that you just got done fighting this huge battle. You're tired. You're ready to go. It was like, wait, wait, wait. Saul told us you gotta. The Bible's real life, and sometimes real life is funny. Saul told us that we've gotta gather up the foreskins of all the Philistines that we slayed and bring them back to him <laughs> as proof that I actually killed all these Philistines. Really, David? How much did he tell you you gotta bring back? Well, he told us 100, but I'm a above and beyond kind of guy, so we're going to bring him double. I need you to cut off 200 of these guys' foreskins. Uh man. <laughs> so after all that battle, you got to go through the battlefield and, and, you know, harvest. That's the gentlest way I'll say this on what's supposed to be a family show. Uh, harvest all of these foreskins and then carry the bag of foreskins back to Saul. Again, this is a weird one, but this is what Saul demanded of David. And David was willing to go through all of this. He was willing to take on Saul's ridiculous task and request because he is his king and this is what he asked in exchange for the hand of his daughter. So, I don't know. I <laughs> I guess from Machal's Michal, uh, perspective, It is kind of impressive that the man who wants to marry you was willing to kill 200 men, and then subsequently, after going through all the trouble of killing 200 of these men that are the enemies of of God's people and the enemies of Saul, and it wasn't like they just went out and found random Philistines to kill. This is in the context of a battle and an ongoing conflict that is going on between Israel and the Philistines in a war. But he goes out and does all of this. I got, I mean, ladies, find yourself a guy that would be willing to do something like this, for you. Because David, you know, he he wants to marry Machal and this is what he's willing to do in exchange for that. Even the, the work of killing them, and then the work of proving that he killed them through this particular method. Uh, find yourself a guy like that that is willing to go after you and pursue you regardless of what the stakes are and and what is required of him to do that. I, I guess that if nothing else, as bizarre as this seems to a modern American mind, it does show a great deal of dedication to and desire for his presumptive bride in this case. But also notice, and this is really the bigger message of including the story in the scripture, that this whole plot was devised by Saul. That he wants to use this as a method to kill David without having to technically kill him. He's hoping that in this ridiculous way that he is going to get the result of David being dead and he doesn't have to be the one that kills him. They'll have somebody else do his dirty work for him. And he's willing to hurt his own daughters and use them as pawns in this game to do so. Yeah. And we know for a fact that both of his daughters, both the one that he previously, and we covered this in the last segment, that he previously tried to marry off to David and also the younger daughter that he is now promised to David and eventually does get married to, that he's willing to use both of them as pawns in his game to get what he wants, which is the destruction of David. But David is so determined in all of this that he doesn't only do what Saul asked, he does double what Saul asked. I mean, this is, again, odd method aside, this is a good son-in-law that offers, because it's what he wants to do, double that which was requested of him to have his daughter's hand in marriage. I think it's pretty clear, honestly, at this point that David has real feelings for Machal and is willing to go through quite a bit in order to have her marry him. And I think it also goes back to loyalty to and a sense of duty to his king as well. I'm not saying that one or the other is the factor that motivated it exclusively. I think they probably both work in concert in this respect. But either way, this is certainly something that David himself is willing to engage in, whether for Saul's sake or Machal's sake or a combination of both. And wouldn't it have been far more useful to have David as an ally, somebody that is willing to do this that not only does what you ask him to, but does double what you ask him to? And that's something that's alluded to in this next passage of Scripture that we're going to look at right now, which is the same chapter of verses 28 through 30. When Saul saw and realized that the Lord was with David, and that Machal, Saul's daughter, loved him. Then Saul was even more afraid of David, so Saul was David's enemy continually. Then the commanders of the Philistines went to battle, and it happened as often as they went out that David was more successful than all the servants of Saul, so his name was held in high esteem. When you're looking at this passage, I think one of the things that it kind of puts on display is that Saul's little scheme here to kill David backfires pretty hard on him. That not only is David not dead, which was the purpose of going through this whole exercise and the purpose of Saul trying to trick David into doing his dirty work for him, but also that in doing that, because he is trying to subvert God's will, by killing an innocent man, that it winds up backfiring and Saul, or sorry David becomes famous and his exploits on the battlefield have become well-known and people are genuinely grateful to David for what he's done and lauding praises on him. When you're doing God's work and you are in God's fold, then nothing that you do, no, no plot that any human being has against you is going to ultimately wind up succeeding. It reminds me actually uh, of a verse where it says that no sword that is fashioned against me shall prosper if I am the Lord's. Well, David experienced that firsthand. He saw it. He understood it because it had happened to him that when there were evil people like King Saul that wanted his life, that wanted to kill him, and they came up with all these elaborate schemes and plans, all it did was actually make things better for David and worse for Saul. That's what it means to have God on your side, is that you understand that, just like Romans 8, 28 says, that all things work together for the good of those that seek after God. See, at this point, Saul was no longer doing that, and David was, and that's why David prospered, despite the fact that Saul was plotting against him to kill him, the most the, the richest, most powerful man in the entire country of Israel seeks his life. And it simply does not happen because it's not what God wanted. That's the kind of protection that God offers. If God is with you, who can be against you at this point? But I, I want to take us through a quick thought exercise before we close out tonight. We tend to look at stories like this, and we tend to put ourselves in the mindset and in the shoes of David, and that's acceptable. That's what I do. I mean, David's the hero of the story, and he's a very relatable character, and because of that, we tend to think of this story through the lens of, well, what if I were David? And that's not a bad thing at all. But let's take a step back for a second and instead put ourselves in Saul's shoes. Wouldn't it have been so much better for Saul to just have had David as an ally, somebody like this that is obedient and dutiful and is willing to go so far above and beyond, having that guy as a son-in-law and a general in your army and somebody that helps you out, even if it's just for selfish reasons, even if it ignores the fact that Saul at this point was really acting more in his own interest as opposed to what he thought God wanted him to do, even from just a personal interest standpoint, Saul would have been a lot better off if he had just not cared whether or not David was getting adulation and praise from the people. And he would have gotten a lot of adulation and praise himself for just letting David prosper. That's the thing that's so ironic in all of this, is that Saul could have had the kind of son-in-law and the kind of soldier that most people just don't have that most generals and military commanders would dream of. And instead, he makes him into his greatest enemy. For no reason other than the fact that he's just jealous of all the praise that David is getting. I think that that's a very sobering reminder for us to not be jealous of the success of another person. To not compare yourselves to other people and to remember that doing so really only hurts us. It doesn't hurt them, it doesn't hurt their family, it doesn't hurt God. It hurts us. It is a self-destructive practice. Now, did David have a great deal of turmoil and problems from this? Yeah, that's fair to say. And it's even fair to say that it destroyed Saul's family. So, I'd, in my last statement, I don't mean to say that it doesn't hurt anyone else. I guess the best, the better way to suggest. The the better way to say that is, it hurts you the most. Because I do think it's clear that the person that was most hurt by Saul's envy was Saul. I mean, sure, it hurt Jonathan, but Jonathan's still a pretty good person that has favor in God's eyes when he dies. It certainly hurt his daughters, but his daughters were in pretty good positions when Saul dies. It hurt David, but David becomes king after all of that. The person that it hurt by far the most was Saul himself. And so when we put ourselves into Saul's shoes, I I think the best message to take away from that is don't be your own worst enemy. Don't do things that are going to hurt you more than it hurts everybody else. That's why you go with God's plan and have him on your side and go after and seek to be on his side as opposed to currying him over to your side or doing your own thing. That doesn't work. Do what God wants you to do and you will prosper, just like David did. And I think it also suggests to us that people should be viewed as blessings and not obstacles. Are there people that are obstacles in our life? Yeah, that happens. There are plenty of people in the lives of righteous people, David included, that became obstacles. But if our first inclination is to think of them as blessings, if Saul had thought of David as a blessing in his life to have this very gifted, very talented young man that loves the Lord and wants to do what's best for him, i got to believe that even if Saul does eventually lose his throne to him, which of course he does, that even then, even still, Saul's life would have been a whole lot better towards the tail end of it. And so, let's always let our first inclination and the first way that we try to look at something, when we look at another one of God's fellow children, Let's try to look at them as a blessing first and an obstacle only when that's the only remaining option. When you assume the best in people, that's doing what Christ tended to do. Even when there were all these other factors surrounding them, like the person was a, a publican, a tax collector, or a prostitute, or all these other things, a sinful person, that Jesus always wanted to see the good in people and see the good that they could do rather than the terrible things and the labels that other people slapped on them. Didn't mean he ignored it. Didn't mean he didn't address it because very often he did. But it wasn't the first thing that he saw. The first thing that he saw was a child of God that needed God's grace. That's how we should look at people too. Stay the course, friends. Tactics with Caleb Colquitt. Only on News Radio 1440 and NewsRadio1440.com.